Good morning again. Said this in the first service. Welcome to those of you online too. We're glad you're with us. And as glad as I am that you are with us online, I would say, man, I wish you were here with us. There is something sweet about worshiping God with his people. I think I just needed that this morning, so thank you for worshiping God in a full-throated way with me today. There's something, um, you know, I mean, we should never imagine, we should never imagine that a, that a sermon can have the same kind of impact when you haven't rubbed shoulders with other believers and sung with all your heart to the Lord. So um, we're so glad that you can join us online, and, but as you're able, come and be here with us. And if you are somewhere far away from this place, find a church body near you. Find some, some church that teaches the gospel and truth and, and join them. Be shoulder to shoulder with other believers to sing together. So uh, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter seven today. We're finishing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter seven, verse 13 through verse 29. And as you're turning there, I just wanted to begin today. Uh, I, I think it's appropriate for us to take a few minutes to pray together, and I want you to pray with me for events unfolding in Afghanistan, and we need to pray for the comfort of those who have lost loved ones uh, in these days, and just mourn and grieve that together for a moment. That would be appropriate for us to do, and to call upon the Lord who is able to restore and renew even the greatest tragedies in the world. So would you pray with me, and let's just grieve loss of life and injustice and wicked evil in the world. God of all comfort, that's what you've called yourself. We would ask you to be just that today. And we'd ask you to be just that especially, particularly, for those who have lost loved ones in these days as a result of wicked acts of evil. Family members of our service men and women, family members of people of Afghanistan, we ask you to comfort them as only you can. Draw them into yourself. We don't know if they know you, if they've trusted in the Lord Jesus, but we do know that you, Father, are able to uniquely comfort in a way no one else can because you know what it is to suffer loss. We've lost a son or daughter. You have watched your son die. We've been betrayed by those who love us. You have been betrayed. There's no suffering that you do not know and therefore cannot join us in. And so we pray that that would comfort. We pray that that would comfort. And we are also comforted by the truth that you have told us that you will not allow wickedness and injustice, injustice to go unpunished. It will either fall on Jesus if those who commit it come to repentance or it will fall on them. But you will not allow wickedness to go unpunished because you are just. And we thank you for that. We look forward to the day that you will make all things new. We know that we only experience justice in part right now. but One day it will be in full. And so we Pray, Lord Jesus, make the hope of the gospel evident to those who hurt now. We thank you too, Lord Jesus. Would you remind them that loss of life in the service of others is not wasted? You have told us greater love has no one than that they would lay down their life for another person. And so we thank you for that great expression of love. We pray against any more evil acts 
We ask that you would thwart the efforts of those who would seek to create more carnage, more loss of life, that would seek to hurt and to harm. So foolish and it is so wicked. In your mercy, open their eyes. And if they choose to remain blinded, would you stop them? Please, you are strong and good. We ask you to do it. Now as we turn our attention to your word, help us to give ourselves to it as your servants who want to know what it says and then to obey it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thanks for praying with me. Um, so as we come to our text today, Jesus is, you know, if you were with us last week, we did a summary of all that Jesus has taught us in the Sermon on the Mount and tried to understand all these ways that he has called us to live. And now in this last section of the Sermon on the Mount, what he's doing is he is reminding us that we must obey all that he has said as evidence that we are truly, that we truly belong to him. And he's going to tell us that we can't say that we belong to him if we don't obey what he has said, not because we are saved by works. Mark just read to us from Titus chapter three, verse five, that says no one is justified before God by their works. And we would say amen to that. But our works serve as the evidence that we are truly in Christ. And so Jesus is saying everything I've taught you, you must obey as the evidence that you know me. That's what he wants to remind us of now in these closing words of the Sermon on the Mount. And then he's going to help us uh, sort of by identifying some things that are dangerous to us, dangers that conspire to prevent us from obeying. And he's gonna give us five of them. But let me say as an illustration of this, uh, whenever I do a wedding, I love doing weddings, it's a great privilege to sort of be present and to officiate a ceremony where a man and a woman are coming together to make a covenant with one another to become husband and wife. There's nothing more sacred or precious or beautiful than that moment. And so to be sort of right there, up close and personal for that is such a privilege. And we get to display the gospel, and we get to talk about Jesus and how he loves his church and how this marriage is now a display of that as husband loves wife, as Christ loves the church and as wife responds to husband and respects and walks with him as the church does that with Christ. It's so beautiful beautiful and so wonderful. But one of the other things that I love about it is that weddings often provide me an opportunity to speak to more people who don't know the Lord than at any other time. Because they'll come to that, but they ain't coming to church sometimes, all right? So, and if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, thanks. You're in the right place, all right? I'm gonna tell you about him a little bit today. But weddings, I love for that reason. And one of the things that I always start with is I talk about the differences, the difference between watchers and witnesses. And you know, watchers, they don't really have a vested interest in what they're watching, they just are passive recipients. They're just watching something take place. And I try to remind everyone that if you've come to this wedding, you've come not to just be a watcher, but you've come to bear witness to what you're watching. In other words, these people are making their covenant in front of God and who else? You. And you are then from this day forward to bear witness to what you've seen. You might need to bear witness to those who entered the covenant to remind them that they have that covenant with each other. You might need to bear witness to others who would seek to interfere with it or get in the way. 
but you are now a witness of what you've seen. So you have a job to do. You're not just passive watchers, you're active participants in the ceremony in that way. Now some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, I've got some phone calls to make from those weddings I have been a witness to. Yeah, you might. Get on the phone this week, all right? So we talk about watchers versus witnesses and passive versus active. And I always remind folks of that because you can't do your job well unless you understand what your job is. And that's a lot of what Jesus is saying to us today is you are not passive watchers of what has unfolded in the Sermon on the Mount. You are active witnesses. Or to use the words of James, you are not to merely be hearers of the word. You are to be what? Doers of the word, right? If you like those words better, great. What a tragedy it would be if we have spent the last 16, 17 weeks examining Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount and then we would walk away acting as if we don't have to obey them. That we learned some nice facts that Jesus taught us, some interesting information. We learned a new word or two. The way Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, I love it. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is not to be commended, it is to be carried out. And that's what Jesus is trying to convey to you and to I today. He's saying, this sermon that I have been walking you through now for the last 17 weeks, and some of you are like, well, I just got back last week. That's okay. You're still responsible. This sermon I have given you now is a sermon that is not to be just commended, like, wow, great sermon, but carried out, lived out. And in order to help us do that, today Jesus is gonna warn us about five things that conspire, five dangers that conspire to prevent us from doing it. Five things that get in the way. And so I wanna show those to you. Let's look at them together. We're gonna to begin the first three we find in verses 13 and 14. So again, let me, actually let me do this first. Let me just prove my point here when I say that Jesus is saying that our obedience to his words here are the evidence that we are truly his. Verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who what, church? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now that's not works-based salvation. He's not saying you have to earn salvation by obedience. He's saying your obedience is the evidence that I'm in you, that this salvation is real, that you have truly believed, because faith comes with action. It is followed by action. That's what he means there. And by the will of my Father who is in heaven there in verse 21, he's just pointing back to everything he's just said from chapter five on. Those beatitudes, being poor in spirit and being full of uh, mercy, being merciful and mourning our sin and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and then putting our anger to death and our lust to death and being so full of truth that every word we speak is full of truth and not full of any falsehood. Again and again and again, he gives us these demonstrations. So he's pointing back to all that he has said and he's saying this is the evidence now. So let me give you these, these warnings. So warning number one. Warning number one is the danger of wanting a bigger gate. The danger of wanting a bigger gate. Look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now I said the first three dangers are just in these two verses, and then I'll show you a couple more from the verses that follow. But the first danger that we see here, Jesus using this metaphor of a gate, 
and he's saying there's a narrow gate and there's a broad gate, right? And one leads to a narrow path and the other leads to a broad path. Now in this metaphor, the narrow gate is Jesus himself. And the narrow path is obedience to all that he has taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. All the things that we must live out. And he's saying in order to get on the narrow path, first you have to enter through the narrow gate. You have to choose to not want any other salvation other than through Jesus, that he himself is the gate through which we must enter. And the broad gate then becomes any other way that we would look to be saved. Any other gate that we would try to walk through to get into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus in the Gospel of John said, I am the door. I am the one that you must enter through in order to go into the kingdom of God. So the first danger that can keep us from obeying all of Jesus' words is if we try to go through some other gate, if we want a bigger gate or a different gate. Now, why is that? Let's ask that question. Why is it that if we have, and maybe you have not heard this, but often I find people have heard it, and here is what Jesus means when he says, I'm the gate. Jesus is saying, I, have, I am God's son, God himself in the flesh, I have come into the world, lived a perfect life, died to pay the penalty for your sin, and not just to release you from its penalty, but its power, its power to persuade you and to tempt you, and the power of condemning you to eternal damnation. I take away the power of sin, as well as the penalty. I can take that, because I have lived perfectly, and the death I died, I did not die for my own sin. I died for yours. And because I've done that now, and then I didn't stay in the grave, but I rose from the dead, and in that resurrection, I declare to you that I am able not just to be raised myself, but to raise anyone else who would come to me by faith. Eternal life can be yours. Do you get how astounding that promise is? He is declaring to you and to I that he cannot just be raised from the dead himself. He can take your dead soul and make it alive. He can make it new. He can give you life forever because he is not dead. He is alive. And that's what he declares. Now, if that's what we believe, if that's the narrow gate, why would we want another one? Why? And let me ask that question. And perhaps, so this is particularly pertinent for those of you who are examining the claims of Jesus. And you are, not, you, you are not a follower of his. This first danger is maybe particularly pertinent to you. Many of you are probably going, well, I've chosen Jesus. I've chosen the narrow gate. And some of these other dangers I want you to pay particular attention to. And I will say, I will caution you here that if you find yourself on a broad path, you didn't enter through the narrow gate. Be aware of that. The narrow gate always leads to the narrow path. There is no such thing as the narrow gate with a broad path behind it. There is only always narrow gate, narrow path. Broad gate, broad path. Don't tell yourself I entered through the narrow gate when you're on a broad path. You did not. Now that warning is pertinent for all of us, yes? Particularly pertinent for those of you who don't believe now though is this call to not want any other gate. And if what I've just declared to you is true and I believe with all my heart that it is, that the the resurrection is historically viable, that Christianity offers better insight and better understanding than any other thing, then we have to ask why, what might be preventing you, what danger here is there to you where you find yourself wanting a different gate? 
And I'll just alert you to two things that might prevent you from seeing that the narrow gate is the gate you want to go through. The first, why, is, uh, is because we can't take anything with us through the narrow gate. There is nothing that can go with you. You have to lay everything down in order to go through this gate. And that is scary. Now, for those of us who have gone through the gate, can we tell you, you're gonna be okay? It's gonna be way better, because on the other side of that gate, you're gonna get a whole lot of stuff. That, not stuff stuff. You're gonna get filled with love and peace and joy and hope. They're all there. But you have to lay down all your other things in order to go through this gate. In other words, the call to go through the narrow gate, the call to follow Jesus, is the call to come and die. It's the call to lay down who you think you are, your sense of where you get your identity. It's a call to lay down relationships, friendships. It may cost you everything. You will gain everything. That's one of the reasons it's hard to go through the narrow gate. Listen, let me, let me speak to this for a second. You know, you need to understand, church, that the gospel uh, is not going to make an impact in the rising generation. I firmly believe this, unless we can answer two questions about why Christianity has a better version to offer than the world of these two things, of both where you get your identity from and what justice means. Those are the two big questions on the mind of the rising generation. Where, does, where is an identity that is rock solid, right? And there's a lot of different answers to that out in the world. And what is justice? And to dismiss those as if they're not real things is gonna be a failure to speak the gospel to the preceding generation. Now for my generation, or the rising generation, I should say, my generation, the, the big question was, the, does the gospel, does Christianity offer anything in the realm of freedom? Because everyone was asking the question of like, what is freedom? And I need freedom. And there's this sense of like, I wanna be free to do whatever I want. And what the gospel said was, no, no, no. I've got a better definition and version of freedom for you. It's far better. Freedom to live in your design and to live in the freedom of righteousness. There's a freedom that's available to you and it's a better answer than the world's answer. But that's not the question the rising generation is asking. The rising generation is asking the question about justice and identity. And far too often Christians in particular are dismissing justice as a, as a secular issue. It's not a secular issue. It's a biblical issue and we better have a better answer than the world. When it comes to identity, Look, this happens on both sides, both, both liberal and conservative. There's an attempt to put our identity in our racial identity or in our sexual identity on the conservative side, often a desire to put our identity in our political leanings or in our national tying with our religious sort of beliefs. On both sides, there's a secularism that tries to answer the question of identity in a way that it cannot answer it. It is not a firm identity, it will crumble. And the gospel comes and says, I've got a better identity for you. How about an identity purchased for you through the death of God and his resurrection that declares you his son or his daughter? But you can't go through the narrow gate until you lay down all the other ones. All the other identities, look, they can be good things, right? Our racial identity is part of how God made us. But it's not our ultimate identity, right? Our gender is part of how God made us but it's not our ultimate identity. Those things don't get redeemed until we lay them down and make them subservient to our identity as the sons and daughters of God if we receive what Christ has done for us. Are you with me? Does it make sense? 
And on the justice side, we have a better justice to offer. The justice of the world, all it ever does is create new oppressors every time. Whether it's restorative or retributive justice, the world thinks it offers restorative justice and it really never does. All it does is seek a restorative justice that is actually retributive towards previous oppressors and it creates new oppressors every time without exception. And biblical justice and scripture and God says lay down that garbage and come and receive true restorative justice from me that both has power to forgive and to be forgiven. Justice that trusts that God will make all things new, all things new, while still working for righteousness and redemption in the lives of those who have been wounded and hurt. There is a justice to be taken up. And friends, younger generation, hear me, there's nothing like it. The gospel has a better answer to your questions about justice and identity than anywhere you can turn in the world. And I'm urging you to hear it. I'm urging you to hear it. The thing is, friends, y'all familiar with the idea of a catechism? If you're not familiar with it, it's basically a question and answer form of, of teaching kids how to walk in truth and what is true according to the Bible, and there's all these different catechisms. And so we talk about being catechized, right, which is basically being trained. And you, rising generation, are being catechized by screens. And I get you once a week. You're being catechized over and over. You know, I shouldn't even say rising generation because some of y'all are on screens just as much as a rising generation. Forgive me, rising generation. My millennial brothers and sisters and Gen Zers and whatever else we're gonna call the next group. Hear me now. You're being catechized by screens and you're getting a false version of justice and a false version of identity and the gospel has something better to give you. You're gonna have to limit your intake your consumption, right? I promise you, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, whatever, it doesn't have a true identity to offer you. And what you're seeing on those things more often than not is a world's version of those things and it doesn't, it's only gonna create new oppressors, doesn't answer the ultimate question and it's only gonna create a fragile identity and we have something better to give you, I promise goodness. If we can't answer those questions, we will lose the generation coming. We will lose them. And not just me, you, your mouths, you have to be able to answer the question, but you have to care about those things. You with me? Yeah? All right. Not in the notes. We went way off in the left field there. All right. <laughs> so if you could see my notes sometimes. All right, so that's the first danger is the danger of wanting a bigger gate. And Jesus says, you don't enter into my kingdom unless you come through the narrow gate. And that means laying everything down. The other danger, by the way, that keeps us from going through the narrow gate is our pride. Because we think we know better or we want to believe that we know better. And there's this idea that Christianity is too narrow, that the idea that there's only one gate to go through, surely there should be other gates that should get us there. And all that is is a denial of the doctrine of what we call divine revelation. And here's what divine revelation says. We would know nothing about God unless he chose to reveal it to us. We are not smart enough, good enough, wise enough to understand anything about God except that he reveal it in his creation and in his word and through the power of his spirit. He reveals himself to us. 
How much mercy is that? We are blind and God says, let me show myself to you. But we want to believe that we can figure out other ways, that we're smart enough to figure it out without revelation and friends, it's foolishness. But it's one of the things that prevents us from choosing the narrow gate. Listen to what John Stott says about this and he quotes C.S. Lewis. He says this about divine revelation. The hard way, the narrow gate is narrow. Its boundaries are clearly marked. Its narrowness is due to something called divine revelation, which restricts pilgrims, means people journeying through life, to the confines of what God has revealed in Scripture to be true and good. C.S. Lewis described in his autobiography how a schoolboy, as a schoolboy of 13, he began to broaden his mind. I was soon, in the famous words, altering, I believe, to one does feel, and oh, the relief of it. From the tyrannous noon of revelation, I pass into the cool evening twilight of higher thought, where there was nothing to be obeyed and nothing to be believed except what was either comforting or exciting. See that? That's brilliantly put. What Dr. Lewis is saying to us is he's saying we all love to get out from underneath divine revelation because then there's nothing for us other than what we want. We can go whatever direction we want. And that's one of the reasons we don't enter the narrow gate. So danger number one, church, enter by the narrow gate. Don't be put off by its narrowness. Danger number two, the danger of wanting an easier way. And this is again in verse 13 through 14. So you notice he said, the way is narrow and what? Hard that leads to eternal life. And the way is broad and easy that leads to destruction. What Jesus is getting at there is one of the reasons you might not want to obey or the thing that would keep you from obeying what he has said in this sermon is that it's hard. It's hard. Now why is the way hard? Just think about this for a moment. Look, I understand it's by grace, it's through faith, and in essence it's not hard, but the Christian life is hard. It's constant death to self. If you went through this week and you didn't have to die to some desire that you have in order to serve somebody else, if you didn't have to give up getting your way so that someone else could be more satisfied in Jesus, I question whether you're on the narrow road. The narrow road is a road of constant difficulty because it is a road of constant death to self. If you are on the narrow road, just look at this sermon. You will constantly be mourning your sin. You will see it more and more. You will always be hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which means you'll be wanting more of it and hungering for more of it. Hunger's not the easiest feeling to experience, is it? You will constantly be having to forgive those who hurt you and love your enemies. That will be a regular thing over and over and over again. The Christian life is hard. It's not easy. And if we look for the easy path, and we are prone to look for the easy path and to want it, where we can do whatever we want, we can put our gaze on whatever we want, we don't have to discipline our mind and the thoughts that we think if we can use our money however we want instead of having to give in such a costly way that we have to forego a thousand toys that we might enjoy, that's the path of the narrow road. That's what I mean when I say it's difficult. It's difficult. Would we agree? It's 
It's not easy to keep dying to ourselves. The Spirit of God will give us strength. Now there's one more reason it's hard and this is danger number three. Danger number three is the danger of wanting to be with the crowd. You see, walking the narrow path, walking in obedience to all that Christ has commanded us here is going to make us really different than other people. And it's not the kind of different that other people praise. It's not the kind of, it's not the kind of different that the crowd says, wow, I really like that. It's the kind of different that makes us seem really weird and really odd. And some of us, friends, if you're not willing to look odd and to be odd, you can't walk the narrow road. You can't go through the narrow gate and walk on the narrow path. Because what did he say? The way that is broad, there are many on it. And the way that is narrow, few will find. Now, I, let me give you this. Don't stretch that too far. It's a good metaphor. In comparison to the number of people on the broad road, the people on the narrow road are few. Yet Revelation chapter seven, verse nine, keep this vision in your mind, tells us the number of people gathered around the throne of God as Jesus is bringing his redemption to bear in the world is so great, it's a number that cannot be counted. I'm glad for that. Are you glad for that? So don't let this image come into your mind that's like, you know, 15 people, okay? We have a different picture in scripture and yet the warning here is the way is narrow and few find it. And that means if you're gonna walk that road you will not be with the crowd but who will you be with? The other weirdos. (laughs) We'll be weird together. The world is gonna give you all manner of bad advice over and over and over again. They're gonna tell you not to forgive. They're gonna tell you to strike back. They're gonna tell you to, to make sure you save up all your money and hoard it away or spend it on stuff that just allows you to feel like you're having a good time all the time. They're never gonna tell you to walk the path of discipline, of sacrifice. They're never gonna tell you to, to make yourself vulnerable to your enemy because you have loved them. They're gonna tell you the exact opposite. So there's a danger that would keep us from obeying the commands of Jesus in this sermon. And that command is that we, no one wants to be seen as odd. No one is excited about being seen and rejected by people around them. No one like goes, yay, I love that. But recognize you will not be with the crowd if you walk this path. You will be with a faithful few, but you will not be with the crowd. You're gonna have to be okay with that. Listen now one thing for me to say, okay, the narrow road, it's gonna be costly, but I want you to recognize something. When I say costly, because you won't be with the crowd, it may mean the loss of some of the most important relationships in your life. It may mean the loss of some of the people you love most in the world. And I know, I know that's happening to some of you right now. Why you have to love Jesus most why you have to love him first. You haven't truly loved that other person if you haven't loved them for his sake. If you haven't loved him first. If you've loved them first and therefore acquiesced to whatever choice they're making so that you can stay in relationship with them, you are not loving them. Now, look, if you have sinned and that's broken a relationship, go and repent. Ask for forgiveness. Be humble. 
you don't need to rupture the relationship, but when people want to walk on the broad path and you're walking on the narrow path, it sometimes is enough for them to break relationship with you that you declare what is true and that you won't change. Sometimes that is enough for them to walk away from you. And where that happens, you must be ready to suffer the loss of that relationship. And it is devastating. Hear me now. Don't, t- don't take that lightly. It is devastating. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because it's your kid. It's your parent. It's your sibling. It's your best friend. And you never expected it. You thought they were on the narrow road. You thought they had gone through the narrow gate. Listen to this promise, you need it. Mark chapter 10, verse 29 and 30. Words of Jesus. There is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake, and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundred Old now in this time. He's talking about the church there, by the way. He's not talking about a future inheritance. He's talking about us. I may lose these people, but I won't lose the church. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Then he had to include this next part, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Do you see what he just talked about? He just gave us the hard and the good. He said, here's the promise. When you walk the narrow road, you will not be with the crowd, and it will mean the loss of significant relationships, but I will bring new things to you and also persecutions. So he doesn't promise us. Let us not sell you a false bill of goods. If you're considering the claims of Jesus and whether or not what he has said is true and the gospel is true, let us not deceive you. The call to come to Jesus is the call to come and die. You will walk a road full of tribulation and difficulty. That will be your life and there is no better road. You will not walk alone and you will walk towards life and you will be full of hope. It's completely astounding. Your life will be full of difficulty and you will be full of hope. Your life will be full of tribulation and you will be full of joy. It makes no sense unless a supernatural being has invaded the earth and made it so. Remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, in this world you will have trouble. Take heart for I have overcome the world, and he has. Those are the first three dangers. We're gonna do more than two verses, I promise. Danger number four, it's the danger of listening to false teachers. Now Jesus in verses 15 through 20 is gonna call, is gonna use the term false prophets, but he's really just referring to anybody who would lead us astray through their teaching. So one of the dangers that would prevent us from obeying Jesus' commands is listening to people who speak the opposite or who say something different. So listen to what verse 15 through 20 says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So as Jesus is talking about this, he is testifying to this reality. He's using two metaphors, the metaphor of a sheep and a wolf, and then the metaphor of two types of trees, a healthy tree that bears good fruit and a diseased tree that bears bad fruit. Now one little piece of warning here, let's not overcook the metaphor. And What I mean by that is it doesn't mean that a false teacher can never say a true thing, and it doesn't mean that a good teacher doesn't ever make a mistake, okay? That's not something we shouldn't read to that level. He's using a metaphor in such a way that he says, naturally, what does a healthy tree produce? Good fruit. What does a diseased tree produce? Bad fruit. And his point is, test your teachers. Test them. Right? Be discerning. And, the, and there's a really simple test. Look for the fruit that comes from their life. What is it that they're teaching? And what is the fruit of that teaching and there is no exception to this. Good teaching produces good fruit, and bad teaching produces bad fruit. So how do we do this? Let me give you three ways to test your teachers, said the person teaching you, okay? So measure this by the scriptures. Is this what he is saying to us, all right? Now, three kinds of fruit we should look for, if that's what he's saying. Three kinds of fruit we should look for. Number one, godly character. Whenever you see that term fruit, the first thing that should go through your mind is Galatians chapter five, the fruit of the spirit. So is the person who's teaching me, are they evidently full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Not perfectly so, but do they seem to be growing in these attributes as they teach me? Is what comes through them anger, disappointment, disgust, or is what comes through them love and joy and peace and that they long for you to receive the word of God. Godly character, that's the first kind of fruit. Go back into the Beatitudes. Do they mourn sin? Are they someone who shows a, a meekness, a gentleness, and a humility? Is that displayed in them? And listen, teachers, those of you who teach, be warned. You are called first to godly character. That's the first mark. There's plenty of orthodox, there's plenty of teachers saying orthodox things, but who display a lack of godly character. That person is a false teacher. According to this, that person is a false teacher. They may be saying true things, but they're full of anger. They may be saying true things, but they're full of criticism towards other believers rather than grace and mercy. They may be saying true things, but their godly character is lacking. It's a false teacher. That's the first measure of fruit. The second measure of fruit is, well, sorry, let me say one more thing about that. I wanna go back to the other metaphor. Another aspect of godly character is this idea of wolves in sheep's clothing to use the other metaphor, the idea there is the wolf is, looks like a sheep, but they're trying to hurt us. So another question to ask about the character of those that you listen to is do they feed on me or do they feed me? Do they feed on me? In other words, do they make their living off me, their reputation off me, and do they seem to feed on me, but they don't feed me with God's word, with what is true, what is good, False teachers ultimately are about building themselves. 
not about building the thing that they teach, the people that they teach. That's a really important distinction to make. And if you're going to be a teacher, some of you are called maybe in the ministry or some teaching capacity, hear that. Be warned. That call has nothing to do with building your reputation. It has nothing to do with building your reputation and building a career on the backs of God's people. You feed his sheep. Don't feed on them. So that's the first kind of fruit we look for is godly character. The second is content of teaching. Okay, so we can't just ignore then what is taught, right? We don't go, oh, they display godly character because there's plenty of people who seem to be full of love and in the name of love say all manner of false things. So the second thing we have to pay attention to is the content of what we're being taught. Now listen, friends, this has never been, the ability to discern this about whether they're producing good fruit or bad fruit, these teachers, you'll know them by their fruit, is so important because it used to be before the internet existed that you basically had kind of a church that you attended and a pastor or a couple pastors who were kind of the primary teachers in your life, and now you can access any teacher anywhere in the world anytime. That is really hard to measure up to, by the way. As the person trying to pour into your life week after week, right? But listen, that's not bad. There's some great stuff about that. But it's never been more important that you be discerning. Recognize you can't assess the godly character of someone who lives on the other side of the country and whom you only get sound bites from. You know that, right? So be careful about that. And then two, the other thing is you have to be able to assess the content of their teaching, if you're accessing 20, 30 different voices in your life a week through podcasts and YouTube and whatever else, recognize, like, I, I don't know how anyone, look, you can only, you can only be discerning about so much. Eventually, you take in, so, you take in too, many, too much content, like, all at once, you're not gonna be able to be discerning about that. You're just not. Be measured. Okay, you're not gonna be, I don't think you need 30 sermons a week to be sanctified. Try to obey one. Try to listen to one part of God's word a week and obey it. That would be a far better endeavor than to listen to 12 preachers or you know, whoever you listen to for your news or whatever it may be. It's, it's a daunting challenge. So the content of teaching, to listen, does this teacher show diligence in unpacking the scripture or do they seem to just go off on their own opinions? Are they straining to give me what it says? Are they willing to say unpopular things? Do they make the word of God clearer, simpler to understand, or do they seem to do all manner of complicated gymnastics with its meaning? Does their teaching make me more confident that I can understand the word of God myself, or does it make me more dependent on them to be able to understand it? Is my, now here, this is gonna lead to the next thing. Is my flesh or my spirit inflamed as I listen to their teaching? Here's the mark of good teaching. I walk out and I say, I hunger more for God. I wanna know him. Not, wow, that guy or girl was eloquent. I really like the way they said this. That's not the mark of godly teaching. The mark of godly teaching is that the people of God hunger more for God for having heard it and they want to know him. 
Make sense? Measure your teachers. The third, now I could, I could stop there, but I want to give you one more because the third way to measure your teachers for, for fruit, that's the thing Jesus is telling us here. Healthy trees, healthy fruit. The third thing is not just the content of their teaching. It's not just the godly character that they should possess. It is also the effect of their teaching. The effect of their teaching. So in other words, and now our teachers are not solely responsible for what we do with the word. Like you're responsible and I'm responsible when I hear teaching to go and do with it. Yes? And, and the person who I hear it from can't make me do that. But godly teaching done in the power of the Spirit full of the Spirit of God, brings about transformation in the people of God. So if you want to know if a teacher is a healthy tree, over time, assess his people. Assess her people and ask, what is being produced in that group of people over time? Is there greater godliness, greater sacrifice, greater love, greater obedience to the commands of this sermon? Is that coming about more and more in the people who have a steady diet of listening to that person? they will be the measure of whether or not that teaching is being done faithfully and accurately according to God's word because his word does not return void and also whether it's being done in the power of the spirit or in their own power of personality. That will be the mark. You hear me? This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, to the Corinthians, I don't need a letter of recommendation. You're my letter of recommendation. What he's saying is, you're the, you, you're the ones I've taught. You're the ones who are the display of my faithfulness. Why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. It's my favorite passage on discipleship in the entire Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter two, and that's the capstone of the chapter. And every time I read it, I think, oh. you know what I really get excited about? Jesus is gonna come back one day, and I'm gonna meet him, and that is what I want more than anything. But do you know what else gets me excited about that moment? Is that I'm going to get to say to him, look at my people, that I poured my life into. They are my hope and my joy and my crown of boasting before you, Lord Jesus, at your coming. Those of you called to teach, don't you dare spend your life giving dry information to God's people. You pour yourself out so that they would hunger for God and love him and see the truth of the gospel and the fruit of the Spirit would be born in them. And if you do that, you will get to stand before God. And if it's five people or 500 people, you will get to say, they are my joy. By your grace, look what was produced in their lives. There's nothing sweeter. Have a vision of that moment. You're gonna stand before them and the people you've poured yourself into, not just those of you who are gonna be teachers, but every one of you who invest yourself to make disciples, they will be your joy, your hope, your crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming. All right, that went longer than I intended. Fifth danger, we're gonna hit this one quick. 
We gotta test our teachers because they can deceive us, but the, the other danger is to test yourself because it's the danger of self-delusion or self-deceit. Look at verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The other danger that can keep us from obeying Jesus' words is that we could deceive ourselves and measure ourselves by the wrong standard. The standard he's trying to give us in these verses is obedience to his word. Have I obeyed the commands of the sermon? Am I increasing in, in my measure of displaying these things that he's just taught us about in all these chapters, chapter five, chapter six, and chapter seven. But we deceive ourselves, and here's three ways we deceive ourselves. Number one, we deceive ourselves through intellectual assent. Did you notice that the person called him Lord? Is that a correct term? Yes, it is. You must call Jesus Lord to be saved. That's entering through the narrow gate. But merely Acknowledging the fact that he is Lord is not the measure of a transformed heart. That's what he's saying. You can't just say Lord and assume you're in. Who's, who will enter into his kingdom? Those who do the will of his Father, he says right there. So intellectual assent can be a danger. You could be in here believing, I call him Lord. And he might say, I never knew you. I don't recognize you as one of mine. The other way that we can deceive ourselves is through emotional passion and connection to him. Now this is interesting. You could come to worship every day and, and, and you could, or every Sunday, and you could pour out emotion before him and he could say, I never knew you because you did not do the will of my father. You were full of emotion and passion and no obedience. When this person says, Lord, Lord, two different times in the text, it's meant to be emphatic. The way that is stated as you read it, it's not Lord, Lord. It's Lord, Lord. With passion and emotion. And when Jesus is saying, all that passion and emotion is not the indicator that you know me. The indicator that you know me is obedience to the will of the Father. The third way we can self-deceive Third way we can self-deceive is through acts of powerful service. Now this is really sobering because notice after he said, the person who says to me, Lord, Lord, and then what do they say? We cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. We did all these powerful acts of service. And he's saying, that's not the indicator that you know me. Not even that. There have been plenty of people that God has chosen to use and move through powerfully who didn't know him. Judas Iscariot is the first example who drove out demons and preached the gospel alongside of the true disciples. Not even miraculous service rendered to the king is the indicator that you are entering into the kingdom. It is always and only the fruit of obedience to the will of the Father. Do you hear me? Not only do we measure our teachers, we must measure ourselves because there is a danger of self-deception. Do not say to yourself, I have entered the narrow gate 
if I am not walking on the narrow path. So just to wrap up then, in conclusion, Jesus ends the sermon with a a beautiful story about a person building a house, and he says, build your house on the rock. The rock is obedience to the commands of Jesus. Don't build it on the sand. And listen to what he says. If you build your house on the rock, if you invest your sweat equity in building your life on the rock of Jesus' teaching, the storms will come and your house will stand. Your life will be able to weather any storm if you build it upon the rock of Jesus' teaching. If you build your house on the sand, any other teaching, the storm will come and your life will fall apart. It will fall to pieces. It's a beautiful promise in that. And then after hearing that, it says the people, the crowds, marveled at hearing the teaching of Jesus because he taught as one with authority, not as the scribes. In other words, there was this unique power and authority because he was the son of God declaring the truth of God. And so the question that comes to us is the same thing I stated earlier. The Sermon on the Mount, says Martin Lloyd-Jones, is not to be commended, great sermon, it's to be carried out. The question in front of us now is will we live according to the word of God? Hear the warnings of the dangers that would prevent you from doing so and commit yourself to living in the truth of the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word, the truth of it. We thank you for um, guiding us and directing us in your wisdom. You are wise and good. So Lord, as we now sing in response to having heard your truth, we pray that you would cause that truth to just sink down deep and then our right response of praise be well received because you see it and you're well pleased with it because you love your kids. You love when they praise you. and We do so in authenticity and genuineness. Receive our praises now, King Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.